Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Show of hands, who has seen the show Whose Line Is It Anyway? Good. I was afraid it was like off the air and nobody had seen it anymore. So they, they tell a joke. They say that the, the jokes are funny and there are points, but they don't mean anything. So there's a Lord of the Rings joke buried in here. And if you get it, you can raise your hand. You get bonus points. They don't mean anything. But I hope it gets a laugh. Um, so this morning, it's, it's a real privilege to preach the word. Thanks to Matt Harris for uh, preaching last week. Uh, bringing us up to this point in the Genesis series. So I've titled this sermon, From Famine to Feast. And it's really a survey of Genesis 42 through 46. That's it's four chapters. It's a lot of text. So we don't have time to really get into the weeds. Um, but the big idea that I hope you come away with from this survey of this big chunk of scripture is that God always provides. That's what I want us to walk away with this morning. He provides for our immediate needs, our needs here and now, and he provides for the needs of our souls, our eternal needs. And we're going to see both of these in the story of Jacob, of Joseph, and his brothers. And we're going to pick up, like I said, where Matt left off last week. So let me spend just a few minutes summarizing the text because I want you to know the story. But again, we don't have time to read four chapters. Otherwise, that would be the sermon. Maybe I should do that. No? Okay. So to summarize, Genesis 42, uh, famine strikes Canaan. So Jacob sends his 10 sons, excluding Benjamin, who's the youngest, to buy grain in Egypt. And Joseph is actually now serving as the governor of Egypt, overseeing the distribution of grain during the famine. His brothers arrive in Egypt to buy grain, but they don't recognize Joseph. They don't know who he is. But he recognizes them and decides not to reveal his true identity right away. He accuses his brothers of being spies, and he puts them in jail for three days. Who's got siblings? Anybody have siblings? Was there a time in life you wanted to stick your brother or sister in jail for three days, right? No? Good job, Cora. Um, But he accuses them of being spies, and he puts them in jail for three days. And while they're in prison, the brothers become convinced that the famine and their situation being in prison are all because of what they did to their brother Joseph. Uh, So Genesis 42, 21 and 22 says this, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why distress has come upon us. Now listen to Reuben, one of the brothers, this is rich. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you? Didn't you listen to me? Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. High and mighty, huh? Need some humility. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So they are convinced that this is why the famine is here and why they're in prison, because of what they did to Joseph, selling him into slavery. So eventually... Joseph does release them, and he sends them back home with grain and a demand to bring back Benjamin, the youngest brother. He wants to see his younger brother. He also orders that their money taken from them when they were put in prison be returned to their sacks, but in secret. So that's going to come into play in a few minutes. 
Genesis 43, the famine is still going on in Egypt, and Jacob tells his sons to go back to Egypt to buy more grain because they've eaten all that was sent, uh, but doesn't want to send Benjamin. He's worried. Uh, We don't know exactly how young Benjamin was, but Jacob's worried that he's not going to survive the trip, and Benjamin is precious to him. But Judah, another one of the brothers, speaks up and convinces Jacob to let them take Benjamin. He takes personal responsibility for Benjamin. He says, I'll make sure that he makes it there and back safely. Put it on my shoulders. So Joseph welcomes his brothers and even arranges a feast for them when they get to Egypt, but they still don't recognize him. Joseph's servant, again, secretly returns their money in each man's sack, including Benjamin's sack, as well as an extra grain, measure of grain as a gesture of kindness. Genesis 44, the brothers are getting ready to go back home, but before they go, Joseph instructs his servant to hide his silver cup in Benjamin's sack, so Joseph is getting a little sneaky, right? So after they go, Joseph sends his servant to chase after them. He, he chases them down, and he accuses them of stealing the silver cup. He searches their bags, and he finds it eventually, shocker, in Benjamin's sack, where he put it. And they are swiftly taken back to Egypt, put back in jail for stealing his cup. So Judah, the brother, who said he would take care of Benjamin, pleads with Joseph. He actually offers himself as a sacrifice, as a slave to his brother in Benjamin's place. He's asking for mercy for Benjamin, who supposedly stole the cup, although we all know the secret. He didn't actually steal it. But Judah makes good on his word. He says, I'll stay in his place. Send Benjamin back. So at this point, Joseph just can't take it anymore. He breaks down and he reveals his true identity to his brothers, and he tells them that he did all of this just to test their integrity. How mad would you be? (laughs) That seems like a lot, right? Like you couldn't have found another way that didn't involve prison multiple times to do this. But no, this is what he chose to do. But he tells them who he is, and then he tells his brothers to go back to Canaan and to bring all of his family back to Egypt, where they're going to live in some of the best land given to them by Pharaoh himself. So the brothers go back and they talk to their father, Jacob, who is nervous. Again, we don't know how old Jacob is at this point, but he's elderly, right? He's concerned that he's not going to make the trip to Egypt. But he does decide eventually to go to Egypt with all of his family. And before they go, Jacob offers sacrifices to God at Beersheba. And God speaks to him in a vision, telling him not to fear the journey. So he gives a promise here. God promises to make him a great nation in Egypt. Let's pause right there. That should be familiar language to us as we've worked through the book of Genesis, right? This is covenant language that God is using. I will make of you a great nation. This is really reminiscent of the promise to Abraham, right? All the way back in the early books of Genesis, he says to Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? Obviously not. Your descendants will number more than the stars. I will make you a great nation. So this is God showing up in this moment and saying, look, I'm still faithful to my covenant promise. So he continues this promise to Jacob. And he says that he will see Joseph again before he dies. This is the promise that he makes to Jacob. So Jacob takes his whole family 
And they travel to Egypt and settle in the land of Goshen. Uh, let's pause for just a minute. Do we want to switch to the handheld, maybe? Yeah, let's do that. Give us just a second. All right. So Jacob and his family travel to Egypt, and they settle in the land of Goshen. So that's, that's the story that we're covering this morning. Again, it's four chapters. It's a long time, so we don't have time to get really down into the weeds. But we're going to see from this story that God provides for our needs here and now, and he provides for the needs of our souls And he meets both of these needs in the person of Jesus. So let's look at each one of these. So God provides for the needs, our needs here and now, our immediate needs. Now, it may be important to start talking about this idea by saying exactly what this doesn't mean. Because we immediately conjure up some ideas of what it means to have our needs met, right? It does not mean that God's plan is to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, to make sure that you always have the nicest clothes or the best new gadgets or a fully stocked pantry so that you never miss second breakfast. There it was. There it was. I got like three or four. Good deal. Bonus points for all of you. Uh, But this is not what it means. Your physical prosperity is not his greatest concern. Meeting your immediate needs is not the same as overflowing your bank account. These two are not synonymous with one another. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Now, every culture at every point in history has done this in one way or another, and we are no exception. In a Gospel Coalition article, Pastor Russell Woodbridge describes a false gospel, a prosperity gospel, and how the church in America has fallen victim to its enticement. He says, it appeals to Americans because it helps them achieve the American dream. Own your own home, own two cars. Holy cow, who could do that? Where are you going to park them in Boston, right? Own two cars and have financial security and a happy family. Bolstering the American dream is is a consumer culture whereby advertisers try to make you disconnect with your health appearances, or discontent, sorry, with your health appearances, finances, and current possessions in order to buy their products. You deserve better, and you can improve your life and be happier with our product. The message goes on. Moreover, there is a strong concept in American culture of personal fulfillment, or perhaps even entitlement, And the prosperity message promises just that, personal fulfillment through positive confessions and words of faith. Ultimately, achieving the American dream is the sign of success rather than faithfulness to God. And your immaterial faith in God will result in material riches. The prosperity gospel teaches you that you don't need to give up on the American dream. Instead, you should see it as God's plan for and blessing on your life. Woof, it is dangerous, this prosperity gospel. Newsflash for us this morning. The stuff, all that stuff that we just described in that long quote, is not the blessing. The stuff can completely blind you, blind me to our real need. Ultimately, we need the gift giver, not the gifts that he gives. 
We need God himself, and praise be to God, he has given us himself. Not only has he made himself available to us, as we've sung about this morning, and as Becca mentioned in our call to worship, he condescended, he came down to us, into our muck and mire and chased after us, all the way to the cross. Paul addresses this directly in Philippians Uh, in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter three. This is a long passage, but it's worth it. It's good stuff. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Let's pause here for a minute. If you're familiar with this passage, you know that Paul is about to list out the, the laundry list of reasons why he is the best, right? He is the one to be put up on a pedestal and viewed as the example. So listen here. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has more reason and uh, has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So here's his pedigree, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to pause here for just a minute. Paul's saying, if there was such thing as an American dream in Near Eastern times, Paul would have had it, right? He's the picture of success. But listen to what he says next. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That doesn't sound like the American dream, does it? That doesn't sound like shining success, two cars and a happy family. That by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Here's the reason. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul realizes that he has the gift giver. He has God himself, and that is worth more than any of the things he listed out in his pedigree, right? Paul knew deeply that nothing he could do would ever be satisfying. It would never be enough And then he met Jesus and discovered what his real need was. Think about Paul's life after meeting Jesus. Do you know where he wrote those words from? And for that matter, most of the letters that make up the New Testament, he wrote them from a prison cell. In fact, he wrote these next words from Philippians 4 in a Roman prison cell, likely chained to a wall. Philippians 4, Paul writes, Not that I am speaking... of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Paul knew the secret to being satisfied, not just okay, not just making it, but to have his soul satisfied in the midst of absolutely any circumstance, no matter what came. And it is to know and follow Jesus and to allow his love and his peace to rule in your mind and heart. This is not to say that God doesn't care for your physical needs. Let's look at the Gospels and the line of people who had their physical needs met by Jesus. Where did it always lead, though? In all of these stories, it led to a revelation of who Jesus is and their true need of him. So think about the woman at the well in John 4. She's at the well because she's thirsty. She has a physical need, right? Jesus offers her water, but then he ups the ante and he helps her see that what she really needs is him and the soul-satisfying water that he offers. Jesus meets her physical need and then reveals himself as her true need, the one that will satisfy her soul. Look at Jesus' own words in Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more anxious or of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. He says, look at the flowers, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, what shall, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. Jesus' words here make it clear. He does provide for your immediate needs. It may not look exactly like you want it to, but he does provide everything that you need, chiefly himself. So God provides for our needs, our immediate needs, just like he provided grain for Joseph's family. And Genesis tells us that really, it wasn't just Joseph's family or Canaan or Egypt. It says the whole world came to Egypt to buy grain. So God provided for the physical needs of the whole world in this story. And and how does he do it? By redeeming the evil actions of Joseph's brothers, placing Joseph in a place of power in Egypt and making good on his promises keeping the covenant that he made to Abraham. Now, we do have to deal with a hard question. So I just, I just finished explaining how Jesus does, in fact, or God does, in fact, meet our immediate needs. This leaves us with a hard question, though. What about poverty? What about when the bank account actually hits zero? In these moments, we are tempted to question the idea that God does provide for our immediate needs. How do we know that he really does care about our immediate needs? Let's look really quickly at God's history of providing for his people's needs all through scripture. In Genesis 3, 
After Adam and Eve fell into sin, Scripture says that they realized for the first time they were naked and they were ashamed and they hid. And what does God do? This is at the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Clothing, basically shelter. This is the, the most quintessential of needs, right? Right out the gate. As soon as we do something to put ourselves in jeopardy in Genesis 3, we, we fall to sin. God steps in and meets our immediate need. He provides clothing for Adam and Eve. In the wilderness, when God's people were wandering in the desert and hungry after the Exodus, what does God do? Speaking to Moses in Exodus 16, he says, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And it's interesting, you pick up there, this is exactly what I pointed out earlier. God's gonna meet the physical needs of his people. He says in, in twilight, in the evening, for dinner, you're gonna eat meat. In the morning, you're gonna eat bread. But why is God gonna do this? So that they will know that he is their God, and he loves them and cares for them and provides for their needs so what happens the next morning, all of a sudden there's this stuff called manna all over the ground, which literally means bread from heaven. It's covering the ground. God literally made it rain bread to feed his people. Wild. God cares for their physical needs. And this continues throughout the story of God's people in the Bible, God providing for the physical needs of his people. Now jump to modern day, little known fact, both hospitals and orphanages came into existence because of the church. God's people living out a kingdom ethic, caring for the physical needs of the sick and the orphan. God has a history, a reputation of meeting the needs, the physical needs of people. And he meets your needs for right here and for right now. Let's go back to our story though, right at the end of Genesis. We see God provide for the physical needs of Joseph and his family and of the nations who came to Egypt to buy grain. But he also provides for the eternal needs of our soul. So this begs a question. What are the eternal needs of our soul? Surely the amount of money that we make matters in the long run, right? What does Jesus say? Mark 10, 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Money will blind you and always leave you wanting more. There will never be enough. Surely the amount of romantic love that we experience matters in the long run, right? When we come to the end of our life, we want to look back and hopefully we've had romantic love. Now, our culture will scream this one from the mountaintops right now. They are hanging their hat on this idea that you are not a complete person until you can express your romantic and sexual desires however you see fit, and that this is the core of who you are and what it means to be human. Let me be really clear here. This is a deadly lie. This is not the core of who you are or what it means to be human. This is not your identity. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7? He says that if you're satisfied being single and being solely devoted to the Lord, that's awesome. Please do that. I don't think that this is most of us in the room, but this idea certainly places our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus, as more important than a relationship with a spouse 
or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, right? It reframes the story about what it means to be human. What is at the core of your identity? It is to be in relationship with the God who created you. That is what it means to be truly human. Truly the amount of success, maybe. Maybe that's what matters in the long run, right? If we're successful, if we leave a legacy. What does Paul say in Philippians 2? We already quoted it. He was the best of the best. He had the legacy. And then he met Jesus and realized it would never be enough. You can work until you're blue in the face, until you're exhausted, climb the corporate ladders, get all the promotions, have all the money. It will never be enough. Maybe it's just the amount of enjoyment, right? The amount of enjoyment we get out of our lives in the long run. There's a famous illustration delivered by John Piper at the Passion One Day Conference in May of 2000, and it's worth quoting the whole thing. Speaking to a crowd of over 40,000 college students and what, about what it looks like to waste your life, this is what he said. It'll be on the screen if you want to read along. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream, the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a nice golf swing. And look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. To be clear, the inverse is not true. It's not bad or sinful to have nice things, to enjoy life. That's not what John Piper said. That's not what I'm saying, and it's not what Scripture says. I like Matt and Sue's boat. It's great. But, I mean, they're a perfect example. Serving tirelessly in the church, that's not their last chapter, and I pray that it won't be any of ours either. None of those things will satisfy. So the question is, do you spend your life on the gifts or for the gift giver? One of these things will satisfy and the other will not. So if none of these things will ever truly satisfy our souls, what will? We've already said it, so you can say it with me. What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. It's true. It's true from Scripture. Expounding on what the Westminster Catechism says, John Piper says this, what is the chief aim of man? Man's chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You were designed, created, crafted to be a human being in life-giving relationship with the God who, as scripture says, literally formed you in your mother's womb. This is why we talk about spiritual disciplines so much as a church, why we talk about them as central to our faith experience. God in his grace and mercy has provided us ways to be with him through the gifts of his word and prayer. 
God has given you the greatest gift, better than money, better than provisions, better than romance, better than success. He has given you himself the best thing, the only thing that can truly satisfy your soul. Not only that, but he provided a way for you and for me, broken by sin, to bridge the gap, to approach the throne of a holy God, something we could not do on our own. And how does he do this in the story of Joseph? Taking it back to, to Genesis here, we need to look at the very end of chapter 46. What was God's promise to Jacob? Matt read it earlier. He said, you will see Joseph again and he will be there to close your eyes in death. Matt mentioned it last week, Joseph is not in the genealogy of Jesus. I thought he was too. Uh, but do you know who is? Jacob, Joseph's father. Luke 3:34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Jacob is in the line of Jesus. Now, this is the same Jacob. Think back through, we've been preaching through Genesis, right? So we're familiar with who Jacob is. This is the same Jacob who scammed his brother Esau out of his birthright. The same Jacob who was seemingly silent when confronted with the man who violated his daughter. You might say to yourself, why does that guy get to be in the genealogy of Jesus? It's in these moments that we need to change the way that we relate to Scripture. Think about the imprecatory psalms. You know, the ones that you get to when you're reading through the book of Psalms and you're like, ooh, this is icky. It's angry and it's asking God to strike down the unrighteous and we skip over those, right? Or if you read them, we're quick to see ourselves as David, as the one who is praying to God, asking him to strike down Israel's enemies. But in fact, we're probably closer to the ones David is praying against. That's a hard pill to swallow, but it's, it's true. God is so gracious to us. He was gracious to Jacob at the end of our story and is gracious to each of us, giving us more than we deserve or could ever earn in the sacrifice of Jesus. So through the, the crazy story of Genesis, the story of these people making mistake after mistake after mistake, God is weaving a story of his grace and mercy leading straight to the cross and extending to you and to me. One last quote this morning, Pastor Garrett Kell says, when we're tempted to doubt the father's faithfulness, we need not look further than his provision of Jesus Christ. All God's gifts of grace are intended like breadcrumbs to lead us down a path to a hill called Calvary where we see this ultimate gift, the son who lived, died, and rose to give us eternal life. In him, we have an ironclad promise that one day we'll be in a, that place where the river never runs dry because it flows from the throne of the Almighty. So this morning, if you're here and you're doubting that God cares for you personally, individually, know that he does. This morning, if you are following Jesus and you're struggling with your current circumstances, run to Jesus. That's my encouragement. He is what your heart truly desires. He will care for your needs right now. If you've not trusted Jesus, not just to save you, but to satisfy your soul, the invitation for you this morning is from Psalm 34, 8. David writes, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That's my invitation for you this morning. Trust Jesus who will satisfy your soul. Let's pray.